So I'm not ashamed to admit it. My family has weird issues. And uh, sometimes they come out in the most bizarre places. We're having a family meal recently. And uh, my oldest son throws out a question. What would you eat at your last meal? My wife just looked at him and went, wait, what? Yeah, what would you have, like, if it was your uh, execution meal, night before you're going to die, what would, you eat, what would you have that night? And Heidi was like, I've, I've never thought about this in my life. But see, that's the way the Hubbard's roll. We think about these sort of things. And, and so we started having this, this conversation about what we would have for our last meal. But here's, you're like, okay, my family's kind of like that. Not quite, because we then turned this into a sport. We're sitting around the table eating a meal with my family, and we actually had, are you ready for this? A final meal draft. Okay, I'm not making this up. We're we're sitting around the table. We held a draft for what you would have for your final meal. This is like everybody today is like, I now have something to talk about at Easter lunch with my family, all right? Here's the way it worked. Uh, uh, Everybody had to end up with four things. You you had had an entree, you had a side, you had uh, like a a, a vegetable or something along those lines, and a dessert. And and once it was picked, once something was picked, it was off the board, like a football player who got drafted. This is where that comes on. Those of you are like, a draft, I don't get this. Is this like army? No, this is football, the draft. And once something was off the board, it was gone. Somehow my son Josiah ended up with the first pick. I don't know how that ended up right. With the first pick in the draft, he took steak. And I was like, I don't want to die anymore. <laughs> That's what I want. Nope, it's gone. All steak, in it. yep, all steak is gone. Well, I'm like, okay, well then pork chop went off the board, you know, pretty quick before it came to me. And I was like, well, good grief, there's nothing like... There's a hundred meat options. I could do anything. So with my very first pick of the draft, you know what I took? I took a baked potato. I got that out of the way. I love baked potato. Good baked potato. Go with just about anyone. I took a baked potato. By the time the draft is over, my final meal was a burger, baked potato, a, a good Olive Garden salad. Can I get an amen? <clears throat> and my mama's banana pudding. All right. It, 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 pretty good stuff right there. Now, n- never mind the fact that when somebody has their final meal, you know, you, you hear this about people who are about to be executed and they get their final meal. Nobody eats it. Like, I don't know how you eat your final meal, but uh, that's the way we as the Hubbards roll. Like, we, this was something we did at the table as we thought about how we, you know, like, what are we going to talk about on a family gathering, all right? Uh, we held a draft of our last meal. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, if you ever came to this point and you had to deal with that, it, it would be awful to imagine being in a place where you knew you were going to be executed the next day and that life would be over. The the Bible enters into the, a story, just briefly introduces this, this very cryptic, bizarre character who is facing that down. His name is Barabbas. Some scholars, there, there is some evidence that his first name was Jesus like Jesus of Nazareth, and Barabbas means son of the father. So literally, if his name was Jesus, he would be Jesus, son 
of the Father. But he had been arrested by the Roman government, we're told, for insurrection. A little more on that in a minute. And after having been arrested uh, by the Roman government, um, they were going to get him. On the night that we call Maudy Thursday, which is the night where Jesus gave the Lord's Supper, gave communion, the Last Supper to his disciples, the night that he washed their feet, then the night that he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane and begins to pray, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done, knowing good and well where the story at this point in time was going for him. He knew he was going to the cross for your sin and my sin. But while all that story is going on, Barabbas is in a Roman prison awaiting the fate of the next day. And he's not just awaiting an execution. He is going to die on a Roman cross. The, 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 the method of crucifixion as a, a form of capital punishment was absolutely the cruelest way humanity has ever devised to take the life of another human being. It was invented by the Persians about three, 400 years before the time of Jesus, but the Romans had perfected it. There are all kinds of stories when there are uprisings and outbreaks and people who are trying to overthrow the government, people trying to, to get you know, bad values and attitudes sown among the people that would be anti-Roman, of, of them literally lining the streets of, of, of an area with crosses and people dying on those crosses. And when they would hang there, it was just a terrible form because you didn't die quickly. It, it, it sometimes took days before of agony and pain hanging on a cross before people would die. And then they would leave you on the cross. Nobody would take you down because the whole point was shame of literally writing this person out of existence. It was Rome's way of looking and going, you don't matter, and if you try to stand against us, we are all that matters, and therefore, we're not only going to kill you, we're going to kill you in such a way that there is so much shame that even your parents won't call your name anymore. Barabbas knows that tomorrow morning, a Roman soldier is going to drag him out of his cell in chains. While, while he is sitting there in the night before he can hear the woodworking going on as crosses are being built for the men who would be executed. And he can, in his mind, hear the hammer and the nails that are putting together a cross that he will hang on the next day. He, he I say wakes up. I doubt the man slept. On, on the day that we call Good Friday morning, In, in utter terror of what awaits him. Meanwhile, the Passover is about to happen in Jerusalem. The crowds are filling with Jewish people. This Jewish man has some uh, con connection and commitment to his Jewish faith. Uh, his name indicates, even what he did kind of indicates this. He is awaiting this. Meanwhile, the town is filling with people. And all of a sudden, the, the governor, a guy named Pilate, has this guy, Jesus, who he is holding a trial uh, on Friday morning on the, the steps of his palace while the Jewish leaders are, are, are trying to convince Pilate that this man, Jesus, deserves to die. 
And, and then there's this, this crazy moment on Good Friday where a Roman soldier shows up at his cell and says, Barabbas, get out here, grabs him probably by the chains and pulls him out. Barabbas thinks this is it. Barabbas really believes that he is about to be marched to a cross, have nails driven through his hands, driven into his feet. That cross is going to be lifted up, dropped in a hole so that the whole weight of his body will bounce. And for the next hours upon hours, as he agonizes and bleeds, people are going to walk by and make fun of him, spit at him, curse at him, call down the curses of heaven on him. He believes that this is about to happen, but what happens is shocking as he is drugged where this man, Pilate, is standing between him and another man. Matthew is... uh, an author who wrote one of the four stories of Jesus. And if you have your Bible, um, find a bi- in your Bible Matthew chapter 27. Because I want to read through this story of, of Pontius Pilate and Barabbas and Jesus all together in this spot. I want you to see what happens in this story because I've just set it up for you. Matthew is one of Jesus' 12 followers. He's the author of this. Um, he is an eyewitness of these events, and, and Christ has absolutely changed his life. Matthew, as we read Matthew, we know the end of the story. We know that it ends with the resurrection of Jesus. But we don't get a resurrection without a crucifixion. And Matthew is going to tell us this story. It's going to include the story of Barabbas, but here's what's interesting. There are four versions of the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different sets of eyewitnesses present the same story from four different points of view, four different perspectives. But here's what happens when you read the four perspectives. All four authors tell us a little bit about Barabbas. All four authors know that there is a moment where this man Barabbas, who is a murderer, an insurrectionist, a robber, is on one side, and the innocent, perfect, sinless Son of God is on the other side, and that the crowd has an option to choose one to die, one to be set free. It is part of a religious ritual that was, was, was embraced by Rome during this high holy day of the Passover of we're going to let a prisoner go free. And now Pilate thinks he is going to use this and get himself off the hook. Let's check this out. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, I'm going to begin with verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, I have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, uh, first of all, I forgot to do this. If you are here and you don't have a Bible in front of you, we would love to make sure you have one. There are baskets kind of on the aisles. Grab one of those Bibles. I think, uh, what what page? We were page uh, 924 in this text, and we'd love for you to be looking down and looking at that. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible that's your own, or maybe you got one from a grandma that, you know, is this really old, hard to understand English, listen, that Bible that, that you are taking is our gift to you. We would love for you to take that home, read it, and start using it. And we would tell you to start in these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where they tell you the story of Jesus. 
And so, so here we have Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate just says, are you really who you claim to be? Are you this king of the Jews? And that's a reference. There was actually a guy named Herod who represented Rome who was called the king of the Jews a generation earlier. And now that, ta- that name was kind of floating around, and what happened is the Jewish religious leaders who were ready to get rid of Jesus for so many different reasons, but primarily because his ministry and his preaching and teaching actually was causing them to lose political and social power. And now they want to off Jesus. But we also know as we read the whole scripture that this was God's plan from the beginning. That that God is up to something that is cosmic for you and for me on this side. But here's Pilate. Now, we get to the end of this little section here, but if we, we pulled, if, if I were to pause and go over and read John's gospel here at this moment, we would have a longer interaction between Jesus and Pilate in which twice, hear me, twice, the governor representing the Roman Empire of Judea holding a trial gives a not guilty verdict. He twice walks out and looks at the Jewish religious leaders, this massive crowd, and says, he is not guilty. I find no fault in him. He does not deserve the death that you were asking. I can't do this. He twice has made this this announcement. Yet, this guy Pilate is going to be in a lot of hot water if there's another like massive Uh, insurrection, if there's this huge uprising, if there's turmoil and riots in the street, his job is, his political clout is already on pins and needles. And so he's doing everything he can, even though he's pronounced his verdict, and done everything he can to to give these people a little bit what they want. And he comes up with this crazy idea. There's this, there's this idea, this remembrance. If, If I let a prisoner go, uh, like, it's, it's what I'm supposed to do on the Passover. But normally you would go find somebody who was kind of in good favor with Israel, that Israel would cheer. You, you don't go find Osama bin Laden and let him free. You don't go find a terrorist. But that is who this guy is. Nobody wants this guy living at the into their street, in their neighborhood. Nobody wants their, this guy living in your community. Housing market values go down when you have to be in fear of people like this. He is not the guy you want around your kids. He's not a good guy. And Pilate knows it. And he thinks, I've got this pickle where I've got a situation where a man that I know is innocent and they won't back off. They're going to go nuts and they're going to riot in the streets if I don't execute this guy. And so I got this plan. I'm going to take the worst possible person I have in prison, the person who should scare everybody. And I'm going to say, hey, your, your rules, your law tells me I should release somebody on the Passover. It's the Passover. How about if I release this guy or I can release this guy? We'll crucify one and we'll send the other free. The other one will get pardoned, let free. And he pulls out Pilate thinking full well that this crowd is going to look up there on, uh, in front of him with these two guys and go, all right, we were kind of ticked at Jesus, but there's no way I want that guy being let free. 
That, that's what Pilate thinks is going to happen. So check it out. Here's what happens in the text. Verse 15. Now, the feast of the governor, it, it, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had, an, uh, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had been delivered up. In other words, he just knew that once he got to this decision, these people could not keep going after crucified Jesus. Let this guy go. He thought he had gotten himself out of the pickle, out of the predicament, out of the struggle. Verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word in, have nothing to do with that righteous man, Jesus, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. This is the same crowd that on the Sunday before was throwing palm branches down and going, Hosanna to the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they are there. The religious leaders want Jesus off so badly that they're willing to have Pilate release a terrorist in their midst. An insurrectionist, somebody who's a murderer and a robber. Somebody who is just like awful, this, this notorious, that word notorious. I mean, listen, this is this is Billy the Kid. This is Jesse James. That's what that word notorious is kind of saying. People knew who he was. He wasn't just some random guy. Like, he's front page news when they caught him. Let him go free. And, and Pilate, who thought he was out of the predicament, is now in deeper. And he makes the awful decision related to justice to take the Son of God, who has been found innocent, and send him to a rugged cross. And Barabbas is released. He, he is set free. And, and, and he leaves. And biblically, that's all we have about him, but I, I, I got to think there's more going on where we look at him. I've got to think that he got far enough away from the Roman government not to get caught, but close enough to still see. I've got to think that, that he got outside of town and maybe on another hill and watched as this man who was on the other side of Pilate hangs on a cross that was built for him. Whoa. See, what's, what's this guy's, what's the issue? What's the problem for Barabbas? At that moment, what does he need? What's his problem? Well, he's, he's got guilt on all kinds of levels. First of all, he has this, this moral guilt that is true. He is stained. He is ugly. He is, like, he is a notorious prisoner. All that we know, like, if, if, when we think of Barabbas, we're not thinking, hey, I like this guy. Let's, let's hang out with him. Let's go to dinner. You hear the word of Barabbas. If you've read the scripture, you're like, bad dude, man. Uh, we're told, like I said uh, in the scriptures, that he was an insurrectionist. This means that he was literally a terrorist 
who had killed and murdered people in the name of trying to overthrow the Roman government. But most of the Jewish insurrectionists weren't killing Romans. You just don't roll that way. If you're a Jewish guy, you don't walk up to a Roman soldier and go, you know, not, not going to end well. They're smarter than that. Who they were killing were other Jewish people who would go, you know, Rome's not so bad. They, they treat us right. We, 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 you know, they, they build really cool things, and we're not going to defeat Rome, so let's just get along with them. They were murdering and, and, and killing and fellow Jewish people who didn't have their view of extremist political ideologies related to how Rome and Jerusalem ought to relate to each other, how Jerusalem, they, they felt Jerusalem should always be at war with Rome, and anybody who didn't agree, that's who they were killing. They were murdering. There was, a, there was a group of these guys called the Zealots, and they had these one certain group of people called the Sicarii, and I think Barabbas is probably one of these guys. They got their name from the type of knife they used because they had this knife that fit over their knuckles and had this long dagger. And, you know, when you wore flowing robes, you could kind of fit that in. And they didn't have to walk through a metal detector when they went into the temple or went into Jewish public places. And what they would do is they would find a tax collector or a Roman sympathizer or somebody who had just said something okay about the Roman government. They would walk up behind them in, in the middle of a crowd and they would stick their knee in the rear end of this person. They would grab them around the mouth and as quick as they could, they would take that dagger and stick it into their ribs, pull it through and cut right through their lungs. So the person would drop in their own pool of blood, unable to scream out and, and would die. And meanwhile, the crowd would turn around and see this person who's bleeding out and would run and be terrorized. This was the terrorism this cat was involved with. He's got blood on his hands, literally. He is stained. And there's no water that gets that stain out. He is an insurrectionist. He is a murderer. He is a robber. But what's really interesting is he, he does a great job of representing the human predicament. You know, Rome doesn't have a great track record. You, you do realize that. Like, it was like a fountain. Holy cow. I always forget to open this and it warms up and then it's like a geyser here. You, you don't have to be a student of the Bible to know that Rome's record on human rights is not great, right? And, and here's this guy who's a Jewish guy who looks at how Rome has treated his people, the taxes, the way they, 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 they um, treat Human beings made in the image of God is nothing more than property, how they turned people into slaves so they weren't slaves. I mean, just everything about Rome is, is not good. And, and it is his desire to see Israel kind of come back in a place of prominence, to have their God rule and reign. Like, this is a guy whose the motivation of his heart is right. And in the name of doing the right thing, gets involved in this stuff. This is the way our world works, right? We think we're going to step in, we're going to solve this problem, and we're going to stand for justice, we're going to stand for righteousness, we're going to do the right thing. But every time we kind of step in trying to do the right thing over here, we create eight other problems, and all of a sudden the person who really had a good heart and a desire to do what was right, like you've been there, right? You had the desire to do what was right but, and, and, and do the good thing, but next thing you know, you, you had made a mess of your life and the world around you. And Man, you, your heart was right, but now you're known for the, the mistakes and the failures that you made, and you feel the dirt on your hands there. This is a guy who is definitely uh, morally guilty, but he is also legally guilty. This is a guy who stands before Pilate, 
and the Romans and the Jews as a terrorist and a murderer, as a robber. And, and there is giving this person justice that is due them, that is due him. He is also relationally guilty. There is no way around this that, that his, his wickedness and evil has put him outside the ability to go into the temple. He is now in a prison cell. He can't go into the temple and worship. He cannot build on a relationship with his creator, and he has broken relationships with people around him. And here he stands between, with, with a man named Pilate and a man named Jesus. And all of a sudden, this man who thought it was his last day is told, you're free. Get out of here. This is not your last day. I, I picture him sitting on a hill somewhere, looking at this event and watching the cross of Christ as the, the nails that were supposed to go into his hands are placed in the hands and feet of Jesus. The, the cross that was built for him is lifted with Christ on it and set in the tomb and it bounces and Christ's weight bounces with it. At, watching from a distance as he is seeing the agony of Jesus knowing that that was supposed to be me. And sitting and watching on this hill but I also don't think that while he was sitting watching on that hill, he knew that there was maybe another figure who was spiritually on that hill watching the same thing. See, there's this guy named Isaiah who lived 800 years, seven to 800 years before the life of Jesus. And this guy named Isaiah is a prophet of God. God puts his word in his mouth. He was a sinner like you and me who was in need of grace. Yet at the same time, this prophet Isaiah, over a period of time, began to proclaim the very word of God to the people of God. And we end up with this book in the New Testament called Isaiah. And Isaiah is 66 chapters that is rich with the gospel. There are so many prophecies and promises. And if you come back next week, we're going to tell you all about Jesus being the fulfillment of all these prophecies. But here's Isaiah who has all these images of these prophecies and these pictures of this one who would come. And he didn't know how long it would be, but we know it's going to be about 700 uh, plus years before the person of Jesus shows up. And, and in these prophe prophecies, these words, he starts telling the story of this guy who was the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord who was one who would show up in history, Isaiah predicts. And, and as he is telling, uh, the, the, the servant of the Lord kind of becomes everything that Israel as a nation wasn't. As God had this relationship with this nation, they were just always failing, not keeping their end of the covenant, not trusting in the Lord but here's this one who comes along and everything that Israel wasn't, this servant of the Lord was. Yet Isaiah then has this crazy vision 700 years before Jesus. And I told you the Persians invented crucifixion. We're about 300 years to 400 years before crucifixion is invented. And God puts a vision in this guy Isaiah's mind that he puts on paper. That's why I'm saying he, spiritually here's this guy Isaiah watching the same event as Barabbas. But what happens is God allows Isaiah to see both the event and the meaning of the event. 
And I want to show you this, Isaiah chapter 53. So if you, uh, again, have your Bible, find Isaiah chapter 53, and, and look at how Isaiah pictures this moment as Christ is now hanging on the cross. There is vivid imagery that is crucifixion related, this vivid imagery of Christ hanging on this cross for our sins. So, so grab, grab Bible or in your app, whatever, find this. And check this out. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should, be, should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, let me just, Isaiah's seeing this, this servant of the Lord, he says, listen, we looked on him and there was nothing special about him. There wasn't anything in his appearance that made him special, but he had a really hard life. And what we thought, what we thought as we were looking on this person is the reason he was so, uh, his life was so hard. The reason he was suffering was because he was actually sideways with God. We thought it was his problem. Like, like this is the guy who was teaching wrong things and preaching wrong things and doing wrong things that, that God was getting him because, you know, he was a mess. And there was nothing in him that made him special, but his life was really hard and we felt like he was getting what he deserved. But look at what he says, verse five. But he was wounded. I want you to see that word for. I want you to capitalize that word in your mind today. I want you to see the glory of what Isaiah is looking forward, sitting on the same hill as Barabbas, looking at this event of the cross. And I want you to hear that he was wounded for, in the place of, for our transgressions, our sins, our failures, our, 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 our iniquity, our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Here we see that Christ was wounded. He was crushed. Stripes is a picture of the scourging and the whipping that he took that is part of the story. And it was for something else. Verse six, all we like sheep, we've gone away and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like, the sheep, like a sheep before its shears was silent, so he opened not his mouth. Listen, this is the picture that, that, that he's beginning to paint. He's, Isaiah is starting to pull in imagery that we're gonna talk about in just a minute of this sacrifice, the perfect spotless lamb that would be sacrificed at the Passover. And now Isaiah is realizing that his, what, his first opinion of this person who was being crushed, who was being wounded, was completely wrong. That this is the innocent one. This is the perfect one. This is the holy one. That it was the nation, the people, it was us that deserved this. But he was wounded for our, he was crushed for our iniquities. The, the chastisement that brought us peace was on him. By his stripes, by his wounds, we were healed. We, like sheep, run away. 
the Lord laid on him our sin. Verse 9. Verse 8, I'm sorry. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who was considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was wounded, he was crushed, he was broken, he was ruined, and then he was dead. He was placed in a tomb. And Isaiah even helps us, says, he was a nobody, nobody really knew him or wanted him, but he was actually buried with a rich guy. That actually comes true. He's buried in a rich man's tomb. 700 years, here's a a cryptic prophecy that actually was perfectly fulfilled on that Good Friday. But what Isaiah is helping us see is something that is just part of this great storyline of the Bible. We're in a series, if, if this is like, this is your first time, we're so grateful you're here. We're doing a series right now at, at, at our church that we're just looking at who Jesus is. In fact, the title of the, ser- the series is Jesus Is. And we're looking at the great truths of this single individual who actually showed up in history and lived the perfect life I should have lived and then died on the cross on Good Friday and Sunday morning. He, he came out of that grave. And in the first couple of weeks as we jumped into it, we, we uh, came to realize that the Bible is like super clear that, first of all, this Jesus, this person who lived in history, is fully God. That the one single creator God of the universe showed up in, in humanity and became like us. And he is fully God, but he was also fully human, just like you and me, that he experiences pain and hardship and, and, and temptation and suffering. But something is going on in the, the appearance of Christ when he comes into the world. And really, at the crux of it is the fact that Jesus, God himself, came to our world to be our sacrifice. That's the big word today. Jesus is our sacrifice. The idea that something is happening. When we, when we celebrate Easter, when we think about Good Friday, we talk about this whole event that is the, the, this weekend that happened around 2,000 years ago. When we, we celebrate and we pause on Easter. But then again, we come back every week at Genesis and we celebrate the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus every week because something cosmic happened there for you and for me. Something that alters and changes everything happened there for you and me. And the thing that happened is that Christ became our sacrifice. He became our substitute. He died in our place. In fact, the big theological idea, I'm going to give you a theological term this morning. I hope you'll kind of think about it, remember it. That we use to talk about this concept is called penal substitutionary atonement. Don't you feel better now that you know those words? You're like, wait, what? Penal substitutionary atonement. But this is theologians trying to help us understand these three things. Penal, meaning there was a penalty that you and I deserved God's justice, that we are part of the problem and that we have run away. We, like sheep, have run away and deserve God's justice, that we have offended the the glory of the the infinite God and the holiness of of the infinite God. But we've also hurt people. We've, We've left brokenness in our lives around us. We deserve God's justice. There's a penalty to be paid. Penal, substitutionary, that Jesus therefore died in my place. 
for my sin. Listen, if you don't know where I'm going, let me just make it clear. Barabbas looked at that cross and went, that is my cross. You don't get Easter and you don't understand Good Friday until you look at the cross and understand the same thing. The cross that Christ died on was your cross, your Barabbas. You deserve God's justice. And Christ died in your place. He died for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. The chastisement that brought our peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is the gospel. He is our substitute. I can't earn my salvation. No good works were out doing, but he died. The death I should have died is my substitute. Atonement is just a word that talks about reconciliation, that because Christ died, we were enemies with God, and he has brought us and made us friends. The cross of Christ brings us near to the creator of the universe. Our greatest need, your greatest need this morning is to know God. Your sin has left a separation between you and your God. And the cross of Jesus is an invitation to come to the creator and know him. Penal, the penalty is paid. Substitutionary, Christ died in your place. Atonement, he has built a bridge so that you can know God. When we talk about Jesus as our sacrifice, this is what we mean. What happens, this isn't just something that shows up in one verse. The whole, the Bible is ultimately a great story. It's telling the story of God and how he redeems people. And from the earliest moment in the Bible, the theme of sacrifice is a gigantic theme. In Genesis chapter 3, God makes the first two people, Adam and Eve, they are perfect, but then they are given a commandment not to eat of a fruit. And they look at the fruit and say, we don't care what God says, in absolute rebellion towards God who looked at them and said, if you eat of that fruit, you will die. And they, would, they looked at the fruit and they said, we don't care what God says, we're gonna do whatever we, we want. And, and they ate of the fruit and cut themselves off from the author of life. And we read the story and we go, they didn't die. But listen, in Genesis chapter three, first, first chapters of the Bible, something died that day. As God took the life of an animal and sacrificed that animal. The animal died in their place that day. And he made a covering that covered their guilt and shame. We move forward and there's this crazy story of this guy named Abraham who has this child of promise. He and his wife have a baby when she's in her 90s. It's nuts. But it is this child of promise. And then God looks at Abraham and says, I want you to go sacrifice that son on a hill that I tell you to go to. And if you read the, the first time you read it, like you're just like, no, 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 no. This, God can't do this. This, can't, this is not the way God's going to be. And hear this. God later to his people says, I'll never ask for child sacrifice again. But in this story, something beautiful is going on. And Isaac is taken by Abraham up to this mountain. And, and Abraham is about to take the life of his only son. And at that moment, an angel cries out and says, I've seen that you love me, Abraham. And there is, he turns around, there's a ram stuck in a thicket. And Abraham pulls that ram, and there's an altar that he has already built for the sacrifice, and he puts the ram in the place where Isaac just was. 
this turns into this, this law and all these commands that God gives his people. But one of the things he gives them is he gives them this whole sacrificial system. And it's weird, but he gives them sacrifices in the Old Testament in this place called the tabernacle where every day you would wake up in the morning and you would smell the smell of animals being sacrificed. But every animal that was being sacrificed, whether it was on one of the high and holy days like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or on the Passover, or just the daily sacrifices that took place, Whenever this, like, it just feels weird. All these animals dying, has God into dead animals? Has God into, like, bloody animals and all this? The answer is no. But God is painting a picture for us. And the sacrifices have to be continual because our brokenness and sin is continual. And those payments are never enough. But God is helping the people see through the death of animals how wicked and broken their lives are and how much they need his grace. Yet the Old Testament sacrifices are like trying to pay off that high-interest credit card. Everybody, we've all been there, right? Got this high-interest credit card, and you're making these minimum payments, and you are making the payment, which means they're not going to come take your car back and come repossess your house. I mean, you're at least making this minimum payment. But no way the payment even keeps up with the sin. And at the end of the day, you know, the, 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 that, that regular payment is just no, nowhere near enough to really cover it all. And what we really see in the Old Testament is these sacrifices that are part of the story where something dies in the place of, uh, of the people there is never really sufficient. It's just like a, a small payment on a high interest credit card that's never going to get paid off. Yet the whole testament begins to say there is going to be a day where one person, this is what Isaiah is writing, one person is going to come pay it all. Going to come pay it all. That's what the cross is about. Jesus paid it all to him I owe. Sin had left, left a filthy stain. But because of the cross, God has made me white as snow. The beauty of the cross is a story that God has provided for himself a sacrifice who took your penalty, who died in your place, and who offers us restoration and, and forgiveness and reconciliation with our creator. And it's the pivot point, the central point of the Bible. It's the pivot point, the central point of all of history today. I love this, this quote by John R.W. Stott. He wrote a great book called The Cross of Christ where it's one of these books who's trying to tell us what happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's just a massive volume that is so rich. But listen to what he says. It says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. Yet God sacrifices himself for for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's the essence of the gospel. I put myself in the place of God every time I say, I don't care what God says, I'm going to live my way. And I deserve God's justice. And God put himself in my place by taking the justice I deserve on the cross of Christ. Barabbas had to have stared at that cross and seen something crazy. That day in his mind had to have left an imprint. We don't know. There's no more about him. But it had to have left him trembling at the implications. But don't forget, we're all Barabbas. Now, what, what Isaiah 53 beautifully says is, it doesn't end there. 
Look at what this Isaiah writing hundreds of years before Jesus, how he ends this great word. Verse 9, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion along with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. I'd love to go line by line and show you what it means, but let me just give you an overshot. Here's what he says. The guy's buried in the grave, yet, look at it in verse 10, when his soul makes an offering again, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Now watch this. This is, this is looking at somebody say, hey, they put him in the grave, but the next week he was hanging out eating dinner with his kids. It's literally what the text is trying to say. How is a guy seeing his offspring? How is a guy prospering in the world? How is a guy going on with life if he has been crushed, if he has been wounded, if he has been dead? And we know the answer. What's the answer? Easter! Woo! I heard a lady say this this week. I never thought about it. I want you to hear this. If Easter Sunday morning wasn't true, we would have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. If Easter Sunday wasn't true, we would have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And this was her basis for saying this. This lady's a theologian uh, who, who wrote a book on this. I listened to a podcast and I was blown away by it. Here's what she said. Until Jesus, like crucifixion was designed to erase you from memory. It wasn't just a way to kill you. It was a way to erase you from memory where even your family would no longer mention your name. And until Jesus of Nazareth dies on the cross, there's not one example of thousands upon thousands of people in history. There's not one example where we know the name of a crucified person. Not one until Jesus. You know why you know his name? Because he got up on Sunday. He got up on Sunday. He's alive. And it vindicates and proves that what he did in the sacrifice is what you need. The resurrection vindicates his claims and it vindicates his cross. He has offered himself for you. And this morning, we're going to, in just a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to come to the Lord's table and remember that sacrifice and celebrate it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that time is for you. But listen, if you're here on Easter and you're like, whoa, man, this was crazy, way intense, and a lot, but I think something's happening in my heart, I just want to offer for you this day the redemption and salvation. You have the same need as Barabbas. You have moral guilt. Your hands are dirty. You have legal guilt. You stand before God deserving his justice. And you have relationship guilt. The relationship between you and God has been severed. But the sacrifice is enough. And if you will come and place your faith, if you will trust in Jesus, today you can find redemption and salvation. And after I get off the stage here, and, and as we're celebrating communion, and at the end of the service, we will have people over here hanging out in the corner. We would love to have a conversation with you and pray with you. 
Uh, we will have other folks who are around. I will be over here if you want to come talk to me. But if you're here today and you're like, I'm not sure I have a relationship with God. I'm not sure that I know Jesus. I may be guilty this morning. I just want to tell you there's a sacrifice. Don't leave here without some, letting somebody from our church have a conversation and even praying with you about what that means. But we're going to celebrate communion. John Park is going to come up here and we're going to pause in the service and we're all going to taste and touch and, and see the beauty of this sacrifice. If you're a follower of Jesus this, and, and a baptized follower of Jesus, this time is for you. We want to uh, invite you to celebrate this. And, and, and if not, come talk to us so we can share with you what it means to become a follower of Jesus. All right, John, lead us through this. Good morning. We, uh, the night Jesus gave his life, he, he celebrated this communion with his disciples and told them to do it often in, in remembrance of him. If you're a follower of Jesus and in a right relationship with him, you're welcome to our table. You do not have to be a member here. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we, we just invite you to consider what Mike proclaimed today, that his death is the only hope for our salvation in a reunion with, with God and he did it as a sacrifice for our sins. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, and then, and then I'm going to pray for us. During the communion, we'll come to the table through the center aisles and then exit back to your seats on these outer aisles. We'll have people here to serve you the bread. You're welcome to dip it in the cup. If you don't want to go that route, there's also a little packet that has both of the elements in it for, for you and you alone. Here's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as I pray, I just invite each of us to take a moment to repent of any sin and then remember what this meal is for. Lord Jesus, we come to your table this morning remembering that we are sinful and in need of shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And you took that upon yourself on, on Good Friday and died on the cross, yet victoriously rose again on Sunday, giving us hope forevermore. And as we come to the table this morning, we realize you said to us, I'm giving my life for you. Will, will you accept it? And by us coming to the table, we, we are saying, yes, we will accept it. And we give you our life in return. We thank you for the hope this day brings. We thank you for salvation that comes through no other name but Jesus. Amen. Amen.